You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post. Looking at the mildness of the symptoms that we are seeing, currently there's no reason for panicking as we don't see severely ill patients. That's Dr. Angelique Kotsi with a simple message to the world after identifying and reporting a new mutation of the coronavirus just a couple of days ago. Since then, the World Health Organization has declared the Omicron variant to be of major concern due to its high rate of infection. Nations have shut their borders to South Africa and seven other African countries. Both Japan and Australia have once again closed their borders to all foreigners. And here in Hong Kong, the list of countries whose residents are banned from entering the city continues to grow. What started out as bans on African countries now includes Australia, Canada and nations across Europe. Any fully vaccinated Hong Kong residents who have passed through these countries now have to do 21 days of hotel quarantine upon arrival. Meanwhile, mainland China is doubling down on its zero-COVID strategy and its borders remain close to all, including all of us here in Hong Kong. As we learned so many times over the past two years, the story of this pandemic, like the virus itself, continues to change and develop. As I speak to you, we are reading reports that the Omicron variant might have been present in Europe weeks before it was identified in South Africa. Belgium, Germany and the Netherlands all have reported cases of the Omicron variant. Just when we thought we had turned the corner on this pandemic, we got our second vaccinations and much of our daily lives had returned to normal. Here we are at a new crossroads. Welcome back to our latest pandemic edition of the Inside China podcast. My name is Bimi Lau, talking to you from our studios here at the South China Morning Post in Hong Kong. And just like we told you many times last year, this year, and probably next year, please keep in mind this is a developing story. When new facts, new updates on the Omicron variant come to hand, you're going to read about them at scmp.com. It's not just the Omicron variant that's been making news in the last week. The news today is about an historic international agreement. Good morning, good afternoon and good evening. As you know, Today is a momentous day for global health. Today, WHO's member states decided to embark on the process of drafting and negotiating a new convention, agreement, or other international instrument on pandemic prevention, preparedness, and response. The significance of this decision cannot be overstated. Just as countries have united in the past to adapt treaties against tobacco, nuclear, chemical and biological weapons, climate change and more. And so today, the nations of the world have made a strong statement that health security is too important to be left to chance or goodwill or shifting geopolitical currents or vested interests. 
That's Dr. Tedros Ghebreyesus, the head of the World Health Organization. The WHO speaking last night as he announced the beginning of talks on the development of a global treaty on pandemics. The treaty isn't signed, though. It's not even written yet. And to get China and the U.S. to agree is going to involve some tricky discussions about national sovereignty. But elsewhere, you might have missed the news that China and the United States are actually working together on a new treatment for COVID. There's a lot going on, so let me bring in my colleagues who have been leading our coverage on this story since January last year, Simone McCarthy and Josephine Ma. Simone, before we start, can you just recap how we got the name for the Omicron variant? Sure. So, as you know, the WHO has put together a system for how they name all of these variants of concern as they emerge. And so um, they use the Greek alphabet, and I guess that was decided as a way that would be very standard, straightforward, not related to using the area, which can lead to stigmatization. And there's been a number of arguments against, uh, you know, using place names um, for disease outbreaks or, in this case, for variants, especially because we don't know just because of something was de- a variant was detected somewhere, was that actually where it originated? So they're using the Greek alphabet, but they actually skipped a couple of letters to get to Omicron. And the letters that they skipped were new, which I think the reason for that is that it sounds like new. The WHO has said, so that could be confusing. It's a new, new variant. And then the other one was a Greek letter. My Greek is a little rusty, but I think it's pronounced gazai, um, but it's spelled X-I. And so that obviously is, um, as the WHO said, it is a common family surname. So they didn't want to get any confusion um, or perhaps stigmatization. And it also just happened to be the surname of... President Xi Jinping of China. Yes, that's right. So he may be one of those people with that common surname referenced by WHO. Okay, back to the um, Omicron variant. You've been talking to researchers around the world about this. What are they telling you and what is the latest you've learned about this? So I think the most critical thing to know is that There's a lot that we don't know. And that's because it's just been detected so recently. And even for something like hospitalizations, it would take 10 days to two weeks to even to start to see hospitalizations. Right now, a lot of the information that we have is coming out of South Africa, where those doctors are really on the front lines. They were instrumental in reporting and and detecting this variant. And so that's where we've seen the sharp increase in cases. But still, um, the seven-day moving average for daily cases in South Africa as of earlier this week was not quite at 2,000. So the case numbers are still small. And it's, it's been a very short period of time that they've seen this surge in cases down there. So right now, it's, it's not completely known. Does this variant spread more easily between people? Are the symptoms the same? Is it as severe? And will it evade vaccines or natural immunity? And that's a huge question that scientists around the world are really racing to get to the bottom of. But I will say, Mimi, that the that the reason that there's so much concern about this, one thing that we can see that we do have is the genetic sequence of this variant. And so the reason that it's raised so many red flags is because it contains a number of mutations which were sort of 
red flag mutations that scientists doing work in the laboratory um, had already identified as ones that help the virus to dodge around those protections that our immune system has due to vaccines. One of the medical terms we've learned in the past two years is mortality rate. What do we know about this? And our Dr. Coates' initial observation, this isn't as dangerous being supported. Right. So on mortality rate, as of Monday, there had been no deaths uh, reported associated with this variant. So that is information that we just don't have. As far as the observations about the symptoms and the severity of disease, I think that of course, it's it's great that what we are hearing so far from Dr. Coetzee and others is that these symptoms have been mild. The South African Department of Health also gave a press briefing on Monday where they had a couple of doctors who were speaking about um, what they were seeing. And, and so far, they said there's no signals that there's increased severity. Another general practitioner who was involved in that meeting said that um, the symptoms seemed quite in line with what he had seen for previous waves of COVID. However, like I mentioned before, the hospitalizations would take a couple of weeks to, to really pick up as people progress in their illness. And the other thing that I think is really important to this conversation is just the demographics of the population in South Africa, which is overwhelmingly younger people. There's a much smaller proportion of the population that's elderly as compared to other countries. I mean, we can look at Japan or you know parts of Europe. And so we know that COVID-19 most severely affects that demographic. Those are the ones who are likely to get severe disease. The younger people are likely to get mild disease. So I think it's definitely let's hope that we continue to see observations of, of mild illness. But I do think it's it's a little bit too soon to make any real um, confirmations about that. So, Simone, I, we are reading a lot of world headlines that are being dominated by countries closing their borders or introducing new travel restrictions because of Omicron. So is this in line with what the WHO has said? No, they don't want countries that share information about new viruses that they've detected to be concerned about backlash that may negatively impact their economies. So if you know that all countries are going to cut flights to your nation because you reported something which will help the world, you're not going to be as incentivized to do that. So that's the WHO's rhetoric around that. That's also part of international health regulations, which go years back. Yeah. And that really brought me uh, to a burning question I want to ask you is that it seems like South Africa is leading with transparency. And that is a good practice that should have been honored. But it feels like they're being punished for doing the right thing. I mean, that's you're really picking up on something that has been stated by a number of uh, health top health officials and world leaders in recent days um, with Dr. Tedros saying uh, basically just that, you know, praising efforts of South Africa and also Botswana in their in their detection of this. And so other countries closing the borders again to Southern African nations overreacting. A lot of scientists will tell you, well, it looks like there's already uh, spread in some countries, local transmission in some countries of this variant. So 
these border closures may be having an economic impact on South Africa, or we even see scientists who are saying that they're having difficulty getting access to scientific materials that they need to run studies that are critical in South Africa because of issues of having cargo coming into the country due to uh, passenger travel uh, being restricted from other countries. So there is a lot of knock-on implications for this past um, just protecting your country as a reaction. But I do want to just go back to something that you said earlier about this panic. The WHO has put out some pretty stern language about the risks from this variant. They've said that its assessments need to be based on more evidence, but there are some concerning things and there's a potential for this variant to change the trajectory of the pandemic. And that's One, because of initial indications that it can spread between people more easily. And two, because there are some preliminary evidence that it may be able to reinfect people, which means that it's dodging our immune defenses. And so um, WHO has warned countries to prepare their health systems for surges in cases. And they've said, you know, uh, other doctors have said, even if it's not more severe, if it can spread more easily, then that can mean that more people end up in hospital just by sheer numbers. So, Simone, you have also been following the World Health Assembly, which is the second time ever they have had this kind of special session. So what do you expect is going to happen in this assembly? That's right. This has been a pretty historic event. Um, Basically, the session. So the World Health Assembly is the governing body of the WHO. And so basically it's the health ministers from uh, countries around the world who are the WHO member states. And they're coming together for one purpose this week for three days, which is to discuss whether to uh, begin negotiations on a pandemic treaty or other kind of international agreement that will basically govern how we handle as a world these kinds of major crises, pandemics in the future. Can you tell us more about this pandemic treaty you just mentioned? What does it mean? Well, that's exactly what they're trying to figure out. And I think that basically what we expect to happen at the close on Wednesday is that they will agree to continue negotiations um, on a treaty Uh, although the language may be a little bit more open. So um, it could be a a framework convention, which would be like a treaty or maybe some other kind of agreement. But essentially that they'll have an intergovernmental negotiating body, which will get to work on what exactly this could include. And there's been a lot of ideas. Um, A number of European leaders and the European Union itself are sort of at the forefront of this, and they have suggested that this needs to include vaccine equity. We can't have this kind of piecemeal situation that we've seen, which has led to vast disparities in access to vaccines over the course of this pandemic. There's also talk about having this include more about um, how information is shared uh, as far as new pathogens that are emerging. And also, It could strengthen the role of the WHO, potentially giving WHO more power um, as far as how it declares a pandemic or what its ability is to um, actually verify reports that are coming from countries. Um, The other thing is that it may also try and tie in with this concept of One Health, which relates to animal health, environmental health, and human health, and how 
pathogens are spilling over from nature into people? And, and what are some of the steps that we can take to limit that? And so, as you can see, it's a lot of very different kinds of ideas that would be of really big scope. So what will happen next, we expect is that, um, or analysts that I'm speaking to expect, will be that they uh, start hammering out those details. And maybe some of the sticking points might be how much sovereignty countries are willing to cede, or, um, you know, I'm not going to agree to share information freely if I don't have some guarantee that my people are also going to have access to vaccines. Those are the kinds of conversations that we might see in those negotiations. But I think right now, there's a lot of work that would need to be done to get to a point of even having a document um, that countries could decide to agree on. And then we would need to see if it is a treaty, that means that countries actually have to sign their name on the line. So what kind of broad buy-in would that get down the line when it comes to pass that they have something? Um, that very much remains to be seen. It seems that the European nations are leading discussion on this pandemic treaty. But what have you heard about the two largest economies in the world, China and U.S.? What are their roles in this? Well, they certainly have not been at the forefront of pushing for a pandemic treaty. And both of these countries, we've seen examples in the past of them you know, choosing to really protect their sovereignty, um, even as they're engaging with uh, international agreements. So um, we have seen statements being made over the past couple of days. We know that the United States said that um, they're absolutely open to uh, continuing to work on making some kind of framework, treaty, agreement. And they've also been really instrumental in talking about reforms to the international health regulations, which is something else that's been under discussion at this at this special session. Um, China, likewise, has said that they're open to communicating and collaborating around, you know, moving the talks forward on the pandemic treaty. So they're not at the fore, but neither has said we refuse to, to do this, basically. Uh, thank you so much, Simone, for your time that we've learned so much about the Omicron variant. When there's more data available, we look forward to bringing it back to talk to us more about it. I look forward to that, too. Thank you, Mimi. Before I speak with Joseph and Ma, I would like you to have a preview of a podcast special we are publishing this weekend. It's with Dr. Ben Cowling from the School of Public Health here in Hong Kong you'll be able to hear an in-depth interview talking not just about the Omicron variant, but also taking a deep dive on a subject affecting many of us here in Hong Kong. Hotel quarantine, when our borders might open up, and the much bigger question, will our lives return to something close to normal next year? Have a listen here. And I know that in the US, actually, there was there was a situation just yesterday where Tony Fauci was asked, why is America banned not only South Africa, but a number of other Southern African countries, including countries that haven't reported any Omicron cases, but yet hasn't banned travel from other parts of the world where there are clearly larger numbers of Omicron cases. Japan just reported a case in someone traveling from Peru. So presumably there's, there's quite a no number of infections in Peru. So for example, why didn't the US ban travelers from Peru on that basis? It, it is, is not quite consistent. And we know that with the experience with the Delta variant, even if you have a, a, a ban on the direct travel between two locations, the virus is still going to find its way through, through other locations. And before long, the prevalence is going to be higher 
in other parts of the world anyway. So those kind of targeted bans, maybe they they score some political points because it looks like you're doing something. But uh, I, I don't think they have much public health impact. In Hong Kong, though, and also in, in, in mainland China, there's a slightly different rationale for the travel restrictions uh, where we don't want to let any virus into the community at all. And we've already accepted that, that uh, we're going to have minimal tr- uh, international travel in, in the coming months. So it's, it's a bit of a different situation to Europe and the US where the airlines were actually getting back to the pre-COVID travel levels. That's Dr. Ben Cowling from the Hong Kong University School of Public Health. And do keep an eye out for a feature interview coming out this weekend. But now, let me get my colleague Josephine Ma on the line. Josephine Ma is a China Desk News Editor here with the South China Morning Post. Joe, we're seeing news reports of executives from Moderna and Pfizer talking about the need to develop new vaccines in response to Omicron. What are you hearing from the vaccine manufacturers in China? Yeah, that's um, a key question that a lot of people are asking, whether the existing vaccines are good enough for this Omicron variant because it's got so many mutations, uh, especially with the spike protein. We heard from this, uh, for example, Moderna chief saying that uh, things don't look good, and but it will take a little bit of time for them to find out whether they will need to develop um, a second generation vaccine for um, new variant. So the same has been said by Chinese vaccine developer, Sinovac, which is the largest supplier of vaccines for developing world, said uh, not long ago that if they have to adapt the vaccine for this new variant, they can do so because they can easily like mass produce this new version of vaccines. But they will have to um, wait for regulatory approvals and also they will have to see more evidence or more data to find out if Uh, second generation vaccine is necessary. So basically, um, for all pharmaceuticals, for all vaccine developers, when they roll out this um, first generation vaccine, they already started making preparation for second generation vaccine. If a new variant show up and the existing vaccines are not good enough to tackle the new variant, then how quick can they adapt the vaccine and how quick can they mass produce new version and roll out the new vaccines. This kind of preparation actually has has started uh, since last year. It's it's not something like brand new that they they have to um, deal with it suddenly. Um, And they already expect that um, there may be new variants showing up because the mutations of this kind of virus is kind of expected. It's more to do with like whether the new variant is lethal or more transmissible and whether the existing vaccines can still deal with them. So this, this kind of surveillance has been going on and for China vaccine producer, they already have this production facilities in place. And all they have to do is to change the, we call ancestral virus. And of course, they have to inactivate it. And there, there's a like a, a process to um, to inactivate the, the, the virus. For example, they, they have to do that process for like three times, make sure the 
ingredient is safe and then they must produce it. But um, like all vaccines, they are looking at uh, more evidence to see whether that's necessary. And also, of course, they all have to go through this uh, regulatory approval process to make sure um, the, the new version is safe and effective and so on. But have they made any direct comment in regard to the latest revelation that we have learned about of the Omicron variant? So for Sinovac, um, it says so the technology and the production is the same. And the vaccine for research can be prepared very quickly for isolation of the strain. Production is not an issue. Um, that's the, the direct quote. But relevant studies needed to be completed and new vaccines approved for use in accordance with regulatory requirements. It's too early to say whether a separate vaccine will need to be developed or produced for this variant. So that's from um, Sinovac just recently. I think all the companies, they are looking at whether it's necessary because the existing vaccines are still useful, then it's good enough, then they may not need to do it because you still have like Delta variant going on, right? But they will have to make the decision like pretty soon. They, they said it will take a, a few weeks. If you look at um, the comments from Moderna, they, they were saying that it will take months for the new vaccines to be rolled out, uh, probably next year. But if you look at the mRNA platform, one of the strengths for mRNA vaccine is that it's easier to adjust for new variant, but still that takes months <laughs> before that, that can be rolled out. It's kind of like in a flux right now, but a lot of scientists saying things don't look good. The chance that we will need a new version of vaccine um, is quite high. So, but we, we but of course for scientists, um, they will have to wait for data. I think we will know um, pretty soon in um, the coming weeks. Great. Um, can I also get you to uh, talk about uh, some of the latest um, antiviral drugs being developed by Pfizer and Merck? Sure. Um, that's an exciting news for a lot of people because a lot of people believe, I mean, scientists believe that small molecule drugs are actually the, 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 the game changer because for vaccines, if you have to give the jabs to like the entire population of country, it takes time, right? But a lot of cases of COVID, now we see a lot, the majority of the cases are mild cases. Of course, um, it doesn't mean um, we can just go out there and, and we don't mind to be infected because you never know, I mean, whether you will pass the disease to someone frail or who will um, develop um, severe disease. But uh, how to reduce mortality and how to reduce hospitalization has been a major concern for scientists and for governments. And having small molecule drugs, that means you can take them, take the drugs outside hospital, because for other treatment, you you will need uh, infusion or intravenous inje injection. You have to do that inside hospitals. But for this kind of small molecule drugs, you can take that outside hospitals. And if they can prevent serious illness or even death, I mean, that, that can be a game changer. That's why when these results come out, um, there were a lot of uh, excitement out there. Of course, we still have to see uh, how they work. For example, for Merck, initially it said it can reduce hospitalization by half. Um, later, like more data show that um, it can reduce hospitalization and serious disease by 30 plus percent. So it's didn't, it, it doesn't look as good as it 
first show. Uh, of course, um, they, are, they are also concerned whether it can cause cell mutation uh, after taking the drug. So that's, that's Merck. Pfizer looks more promising. The initial results show that it can reduce hospitalization by 90 plus percent. Uh, but we, we, of course, we still need more data because you will have to see how it works in a, a real world setting before you can decide. But the Pfizer CEO just said recently that he's confident that this drug can tackle um, Omicron variants. But uh, we still have to check. I mean, we, are, we still need more data to decide. For all these kind of drugs, I mean, they're first generation drug, that means um, new drugs, right? And they need improvement. So they all have their limitations. You, I mean, you can't expect that I can just go to a drugstore and I, I have a running nose and I, I'm not sure whether I got COVID. I just go to the drugstore and get a, a pure. And then it's, it's not like that. You still need prescription. You still have to see whether you really need the drug um, for um, the Pfizer drug. You cannot take it with um, some other drugs. I mean, the doctors will know. But still, it offers hope that um, when there are effective treatments to stop um, the infection from developing into severe disease, that could be game changer. But we still, we are still not sure yet. Joe, you have also been reporting on the development of new antibody treatments in mainland China. How do they work? And do you know how far away are they from being released to the public? There are some new developments um, in China. China has been working on therapeutics as well. Uh, of course, uh, we heard a lot about Chinese vaccines, but we haven't heard too much about um, the therapeutic size. But there's like some breakthroughs lately. Um, one is a monoclonal antibody treatment by a Chinese firm called Free Biosciences. It basically based on two monoclonal antibodies identified by Tsinghua University scientists. So monoclonal antibody means that, so the scientists, they look at all these antibodies developed by recovered patients. So among these antibodies, they identify those with the potential to be mass produced. And when you infuse that in a person, it can mimic the immune response of a person to fight against um, the, the virus. And they are combining two monoclonal antibodies they found for treatment and an official publication under the uh, Ministry of Science and Technology said that uh, they're expecting conditional approval uh, by year end. So if that's the case, then that would be the first monoclonal antibody treatment developed by a Chinese pharmaceutical. Of course, this kind of treatment is not entirely new because you already have a handful approved by US FDA. And if you remember, like former US President um, Donald Trump, he had monoclonal antibody treatment when he was infected with COVID-19 as well. So that's a, a new development for China. Another antibody treatment that's worth watching is a antibody um, identified by a scientist from Peking University. Interesting part with that is uh, he that antibody can tackle all variants. It's an all-spectrum antibody. But we don't know because um, when scientists do this kind of experiments, it's in a laboratory setting. 
until you use this kind of treatments on patients, you don't know how effective it is. But of course, um, they said that, um, for example, the, the first one uh, by Bio, um, they have been used in Chinese patients for compassionate use, and uh, the result looks good. And they have already submitted um, data to China regulator, and they have already sub- submitted data to U.S. FDA, and they are waiting for the feedback, the approval. And for the second one, it has been used on uh, 14 patients in Beijing, and they said um, the result is pretty good, but. The number of patients is, is very small and you still, I mean, they are still um, have to talk to like pharmaceuticals to see how to commercialize it. So these are the developments or progress from the monoclonal antibody treatment. So Joe, a lot of people are talking about uh, booster shot these days and China have always been insisting on sticking to the same uh, vaccine booster. But now it seems that there's a policy change regarding that, allowing different vaccine boosters. Can you talk to us about that? What have you learned so far? Sure. So in the past few months, China has been saying that for booster shots, they they require people to receive the same kind of um, vaccines they had before as a third shot. But um, last month, um, they said they approve mixing vaccines. Actually, there have been a lot of um, studies showing that if you have two inactivated vaccines and for the third shot, if you use a different kinds of um, technology platform, then um, the immunity can like en- uh, can be enhanced quite significantly. So China, they finally said they're going to approve uh, mixing vaccines. So the question is what kind of boosters they will approve? And a lot of people are watching if China is going to approve um, the use of Binotech mRNA vaccine, because as we heard about, as we know, reported before that um, Fortune in Shanghai uh, is signed a deal with um, Binotech to distribute and also to locally produce this mRNA vaccine. Um, for the rest of the world, is is marketed by Pfizer. And an expert committee advising the Chinese regulator actually um, gave green light to the use of this vaccine months ago, but we haven't heard anything from the Chinese regulator. And a lot of people are watching if China is going to approve it. Of course, there have been a lot of speculations, like whether China is holding this approval because it wants to see if the domestically developed mRNA vaccine is good enough. So the data should be available pretty soon for this locally developed uh, mRNA vaccine that's developed by um, the Academy of Military Medical Sciences with Yunnan Wellwax um, and also Shuzhou Abogen Biosciences. Um, so that's something people are watching. So if the data is good, um, is China going to use it as a booster shot? People are watching. And also China also has its own protein subunit vaccines. Protein subunit vaccines are actually um, recommended by a lot of um, scientists because um, the this technology is well-developed and um, is stable and, and is effectiveness with the original variant. And also um, Delta is quite good. So if is China going to use protein vaccines as 
a booster. That's what people are watching as well. Thank you so much, Joe, for leading us into this deep dive. Uh, we look forward to bring you back for our next episode when we learn more about the Omicron variant and the response of the industry. Sure, my pleasure. Thank you. Intense research studying the global risk of this variant of concern is going on, and it might take weeks before we know anything certain. After two years of coexisting with the coronavirus, it's probably worth reminding ourselves to stay calm and trust the scientists for doing their best. We'll be back for more updates on the latest of Omicron and what China is doing in response to the global pandemic. Don't forget to keep washing your hands, wear your mask and stay healthy. My name is Mimi Lau. Keep up to date to everything we're publishing here on scmp.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at GZMimi. Bye-bye.